The following episode contains sensitive topics such as suicide, physical abuse, and sexual assault. Viewer discretion is advised. Immaculate Basil, nicknamed Mackie by friends and family, was a compassionate and empathetic woman from the Coos Che Reserve in British Columbia, Canada. Her unmistakable laugh and deeply woven care for children were cut short by an unexplainable, unsolved disappearance in June of 2013, leaving all who knew her across the village of Tash and the entirety of the Coos Che Reserve at large, grasping for answers in a sea of mysteries that drowned us all in doubt. In the hope of providing more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of Mackie Basil's disappearance in Tash, British Columbia, and the harrowing story of murder, mayhem, and missing indigenous women in rural Canada. This is Cold Case Detective. Immaculate Mary Basil was born on December 8, 1985, to parents Samuel Basil and Patricia Joseph in rural British Columbia, Canada. The day marked the Roman Catholic holiday, known as the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, a celebration of the Virgin Mary. Samuel figured there wasn't a more befitting name for his newborn baby girl than one signifying the holiday, and Immaculate received her namesake. It didn't take long for the nickname Mackie to originate, and the newest member of the Basil family was welcomed with a burgeoning identity. Mackie and her family were raised in Tash, British Columbia, a First Nations village located in the vast woodlands of rural Canada. The town belonged to the Talasdan Nation on the Coos Che Reserve, where a group of indigenous peoples called themselves Dakel, translated to people who travel upon water. It contained one road in and out of the village, and hosted a population of just 400 people. Resting on the lake called Nak Albon, also called Stuart Lake, Tash's close-knit community spent their summers foraging in the mountains and catching fish in the waterbed. Winters were brutally cold, and heat sources were scarce, but the people who called it home didn't flinch and survived as best they could. Mackie grew up in a mostly stable home for the first few years of her life watching as the family grew. She was the third of eight siblings, with older brother Peter, older sister Ida, and younger sister Crystal forming the clan of her early years. The siblings got along fantastically and were well on their way to enjoying wonderful youths under a stable roof. All of this changed, however, when Mackie was just four years old. Her father, Samuel, was caught in an adultery scandal and ended up leaving the Basil household to live with another woman. The incident crushed Mackie's mother, Patricia, who had covered up immense pain and struggles of her own for decades. Patricia had been a victim of a Lejac residential school during her youth, where her identity and culture as an indigenous woman were stripped from her as she withstood abuse and neglect from her country. These traumas, combined with her ex-husband's infidelity, led to a severe bout of alcoholism, and the family struggled to move forward. At first, Mackie's brother Peter took the reins in attempting to care for his younger siblings. Being a teenager at the time, he could at least find casual work around the reserve 
and come up with basic resources for Maki and her sisters. But it didn't suffice in the long term. Eventually, a ward for the welfare division in British Columbia arrived at the Basil household to take the children away from their mother and into foster care, as arranged by the Ministry of Children and Family Development. Mackie's life took a terrible turn for the worse once put in foster care. In the first couple of years, she was able to stay under one roof with her sisters, Crystal and Ida. The three looked out for each other as they were exposed to the torment of uncaring foster parents. In one household, they were fed spoiled food and forced to undress in public when they would get dirty from playing outside. Eventually, Mackie and her sisters were separated into different foster homes. While it was a crushing blow to their overall well-being, the siblings remained in contact with each other. They still attended the same school and met up during lunchtime, and if they weren't in class, the girls would call each other at 10 a.m. every day. The separation hurt Mackie the worst, though. At the time, her parents were nonchalant with the styles of the period and dressed Mackie in outdated clothing, often leading to bullying at school for both her attire and her thick regional accent. After a few years of isolated foster care, the three sisters were finally put back in the same home once they all reached adolescence. The reunion was anything but sweet, however. Once the girls matured, their foster parents, more specifically their foster fathers, would commit acts of sexual abuse and assault. Ida and Mackie, fearing for their youngest sister, Crystal, would go out of their way to take the brunt of the violence. Mackie especially received a high percentage of this abuse, be it physical or verbal. Without anyone to turn to, Mackie and her sisters internalized the trauma and fought to survive a system set up against them. Over time, the Basil children found ways to reunite with their eldest brother, Peter. Sometimes, Mackie, Ida, and Crystal would be placed in hotel rooms for weeks on end, rather than official homes, and they'd use their allowances to hop on a bus and travel north to visit Peter. If the bus wasn't available or money was tight, they'd hitchhike instead. Regardless of how she got there or what she had to do to make it possible, Mackie fell in love with the idea of reconnecting with her roots as an indigenous woman and with the family she was separated from so many years ago. She wanted to familiarize herself with her tribe's history and the culture she never got to experience. These dreams were realized when Mackie graduated high school and moved back home to Tash. She started a family with her partner at the time, the father of their newborn baby boy named Jameson. While in Tash, Mackie gained employment at a local school, working as a teacher's aide and receptionist for the band office. She even did nominal cleaning assignments around the reserve, but mostly dedicated her time to nurturing her son. Hoping to provide a better living situation for other youths around the Kuzche Reserve, Mackie also fostered a few children who needed care themselves. Knowing the horrors of her own past were still taking place around the greater BC area, Mackie did her best to save the souls still growing and learning around the village. When she wasn't taking care of her kids or working tirelessly at school, Mackie was finding creative outlets, whether that be drawing or coloring or coming up with vibrant and beautiful decorations for the holidays and celebrations held with family members. She adored music, and when home alone, would blast it from her front porch, finding songs that represented the courage, strength, and perseverance she displayed since a young age. Mackie ended up separating from her longtime partner and the father of Jameson. Needing a place to stay, Mackie moved in with her brother Peter and his wife Vivian. 
Here she would help Vivian forage for food in the nearby hills and cook various meals for her son, nephews, and anyone who stopped by. In a sense, she was following the footsteps of her late mother, who had been struck and killed by a tractor trailer in 2006, and was on her way to confronting her dark past and healing from the trauma hanging over her like a storm cloud. Yet in a cruel and wicked twist, these efforts were halted when Mackie disappeared without a trace after attending a summer party in the middle of June 2013, creating yet another resounding echo of silence and tragedy in the small town of Tash. Let us now turn to the timeline of events leading up to Mackie's disappearance. In 2012, Mackie Basil and her boyfriend of a few years split up after living together with their newborn son, Jameson. Mackie moves in with her brother and sister-in-law while maintaining full custody of her son. While she isn't at Peter's house full-time, it's where she spends a bulk of her free time, rarely going out and keeping to her introverted personality. Fast forward to June of 2013, about one week before Father's Day. Mackie asks Peter to take care of her baby on multiple occasions, promising to return. What she's referring to isn't fully understood, but Peter senses an irritation or anxiety bubbling to Mackie's surface. A few days later, on Friday, June 13th, Mackie goes shopping with Peter and Vivian. There, they buy groceries, including two 26-ounce bottles of vodka that Mackie asks Peter to purchase for a party that night because she's misplaced her identification. Afterwards, they head back home to check the mail. That same evening, around 5 p.m., Mackie attends her aunt's funeral with members of the Basil family. Soon after the funeral ends, Mackie returns to Peter and Vivian's residence. She showers and changes into fresh clothing, including gray leggings, a blue t-shirt, and a black hooded sweatshirt with a maple leaf design on the front. A few minutes later, right before she departs for her party, Mackie makes sure to pack her navy blue iPod shuffle and headphones with one bottle of the vodka so as not to be without music. She also finds Vivian, and tells her she'll return to the house the following day to take Jameson and her nephew to the park to play. Just as the sun touches the horizon and dusk begins to fall, Mackie departs Peter's home in Tash. She heads to the party on foot to a remote cabin in the Che Reserve Woodlands, a 20-minute walk from the Basil house. Just after midnight on Saturday, June 14th, Mackie arrives back at her brother's place. She picks up the second bottle of vodka and leaves once more but not before saying goodbye to Peter and telling him, I love you. Peter follows Mackie outside, and she explains she's with two men, a man by the name of Victor and her cousin, Keith. Peter watches as Mackie walks up the path that runs alongside his house and up into the thick of the trees. Mackie climbs into a pickup truck driven by Victor and Keith, and they head back to the party. Peter feels a twinge of strangeness about the whole ordeal. This is the last confirmed sighting, of Immaculate Basil. Later that night, Mackie allegedly rides with Victor and Keith as they retrieve red roofing tin from another hunter's cabin on the reserve. At some point in their journey, the white and blue pickup gets into a minor accident on the Leo Creek Forest Service Road, around an area colloquially called 16 Kilometer. At around 9.30 a.m., a forest worker driving down the same service road makes a sighting of a single, long-haired woman walking over a bridge in the opposite direction of a disabled pickup truck. The worker also spots two men with the truck, who pay no attention to the long-haired woman. About 30 minutes later, at 10am, 
Three witnesses named Vanessa, Joseph, and Ron see Victor walking through Tash, his clothing soaking wet all the way up to his chest. Around the same time, the Basil sisters, Crystal and Ida, began to worry as Mackie misses their daily phone call. They want to call their brother, Nick, who sometimes hosted Mackie, but neither she nor Nick own a phone. Nick's home was too far to reach by foot also, so the sisters stay home. 24 hours go by, and at 10 a.m. on Sunday, June 15th, Father's Day in 2013, the Basil family's worries escalate to a real fear that something has happened to Mackie, still having not heard from her. Vivian and Mackie's two sisters call people around the community, asking if anyone had seen or heard from Mackie. The following day, on June 16th, Crystal and Ida finally connect with their brother Nick, who informs them he never saw Mackie in the days leading up to Father's Day. Another day passes with no new information coming forward, and on June 17, 2013, Crystal files an official police report with the RCMP. Authorities arrive at the Basil home the next day, on June 18th, where they interview Crystal. They kick off their investigations with interviews of anyone suggested to be at the party Mackie attended on the evening of June 13th. Simultaneously, the Basil family round up nearly 300 volunteers from both Kuzche and the surrounding reserves to form a search camp and comb through the woodlands in the hope of finding Mackie. They begin their search at the same bridge where the forestry worker made their sighting of a long-haired woman. A day after the volunteers establish their campground, the RCMP joins them with their own official search and rescue squads, equipped with search dogs and radio instruments. Over the next couple of weeks, both parties discover various objects strewn throughout the forest, but nothing of note or connection to Mackie Basil. At some point during the initial search missions, Peter and Vivian woke up at the volunteer campgrounds to find their tent had been slashed open in the middle of the night. As the investigation makes no grounds, rumors around Tash begin swirling, involving the two men last thought to be with Mackie, Victor and Keith. One rumor in particular strikes the Basil family as odd. Apparently, the truck, driven by Victor and Keith, had been scrubbed rigorously with bleach in the days after Mackie disappeared. It doesn't take long before the gossip reaches the RCMP investigators, who clarify they've interviewed both Victor and Keith. The RCMP also reveals both men passed polygraph tests, and when they took possession of the truck in question, they found no signs of either foul play or bleach. They also announce Victor and Keith remained cooperative during their investigations, and a forensic psychologist was brought in to observe their behaviors, which were also cleared. Sometime afterwards, Vivian Basil makes personal contact with Keith and Victor, who tell the Basils they aren't 100% sure what happened, but think Mackie hitched a ride from someone other than them the night of the party. Without many other leads to chase down, police turn to Mackie's ex-boyfriend. No one knew the exact reason why Mackie and her partner broke up, and the police never announced an official answer. However, they do learn of an alibi Mackie's ex had to explain his whereabouts the night of June 13th. The RCMP corroborate this information and determine the man was too far from Tash to be considered a person of interest. Not long after, law enforcement runs out of clues. They tell the Basil family that without a crime scene, there cannot be official suspects. However, they do believe foul play cannot be ruled out and that anyone could be culpable for taking advantage of a young woman alone at night. 
In the years since Mackie went missing, the Basil family and remaining members of the Tash community rely on their own methods to learn of Mackie's fate. They use dreams and their symbolism to look for clues, like following channels of water or watching the animals in the trees as their guides. The family especially likes to watch true crime television in hopes that they will be inspired when thinking of potential leads or similarities in other cases. They even go as far as to contact a psychic who tells them one day someone will come forward with pertinent information. Meanwhile, the remote cabin where Mackie attended the party is searched endlessly by both investigators and volunteers. It deteriorates into a half-standing structure and becomes a home for spider webs and strewn materials left by a logging company operating in the vicinity. As of the present day, the community of Tash is still in utter disbelief regarding Mackie's unexplainable disappearance. Their close-knit connections and sense of togetherness was shattered, and the lack of closure or any reasonable answers has left many of them deeply hurt by the tragedy. And yet, the Basil family still believes someone in their village is responsible, and haven't given up hope that the truth will be revealed. Like many cases across rural Canada involving the disappearance of First Nations women and children, there are few clues or points of emphasis in Mackie Basil's case file. So much of the information is already murky, with little verifiable fact or indisputable data made public by the assigned investigators. While this is understandable to a degree, considering authorities keep certain details classified as to not interrupt the cadence of an investigation, nearly nine years has passed since Mackie first vanished, and we still don't have much testimony or physical leads that help paint a picture of what exactly we are dealing with. That being said, one major eyewitness account stands out from the rest, with head-turning observations that may have more subtext than originally thought. This case point comes from Vanessa Joseph, a relative of Mackie's on her mother's side. Vanessa was interviewed not long after the investigation went underway, and she had some interesting things to say about the party on the evening of June 13th, 2013, and the two men last spotted with Mackie alive. Vanessa stated that while she doesn't know the exact number of people attending the party at the remote cabin that fateful evening, she does believe it included mostly Mackie's cousins and fellow relatives, all people of an inner circle where everyone knew everyone. Vanessa included in the statement that she personally knew who Victor and Keith were, despite not having close relationships with either man. Vanessa also felt the circumstances surrounding Mackie's disappearance and the involvement of Victor and Keith were suspicious and left no stone unturned. She visited the supposed crash sites where the pickup truck disabled at 16 km on Leo Creek Forest Service Road. She revealed that she did find parts of a truck stewed near a tree that had broken in half believing that, at very least, there had been an automobile accident of some kind. Others believe the truck simply got caught in the mud, but at least there were bits and pieces of the truck left behind to prove that something happened. Vanessa kept digging and discovered that after Victor and Keith's truck crashed at 16 km, they tried to wrangle a black truck owned by someone at the second cabin where the red roofing tin was being held so that it could come down through the woodland and tow the disabled pickup truck back to town. The issue with this explanation, according to Vanessa, was that the black truck never made it down Leo Creek Forest Service Road and into Tash. Rather, it was left behind at the hunter's cabin in the Coos Che Woodlands, about an hour-long drive from 16 kilometer. 
What further complicates the situation is Vanessa's own sighting of Victor the morning after Mackie disappeared, where he had been seen walking through Tash at 10 a.m. with his clothes soaking wet up to his chest. If the timeline we've been given is correct, that means he made it into town just 30 minutes after he had been seen by the forestry worker at the crash site. So, if the black truck at the cabin never came down to tow the disabled pickup truck, how did Victor make it to downtown Tash so quickly, and why was he soaking wet? If a passerby offered to drive him into town, why wouldn't they just bring him directly to his destination and not force him to walk in wet clothing? Which is a question in its own right. What was he doing to be drenched nearly head to toe? If they were stuck in mud, there is no corroborating eyewitness testimony specifying his clothes, specifying his clothes were dirty or muddy. Unfortunately, while Vanessa's testimony is noteworthy and leaves inklings of suspicion, it complicates the, it complicates the investigation rather than clarifying it. She has since stated she believes everyone involved in the case has been properly interviewed by police and has no idea who could be responsible, despite her comments on Victor and Keith. It goes without saying, she isn't the only one. Let us now turn to the most prominent theories in explaining the disappearance of Immaculate Basil. To better understand the theories surrounding Mackie's investigation, it's important to take a closer look at the geography of Tash and the nature of rural British Columbia as a whole. Tash sits on the northern shores of Stewart Lake, British Columbia, properly named Lake Nakalban. The closest, most heavily populated junction nearby is Fort St. James, 45 minutes south of Tash, connected to the reserve by Tash Road and Route 27. Between the two locations are plenty of lakes, smaller ponds, interconnected rivers, and hillsides, featuring infinite backwoods. If an area isn't covered by man-made structures or bodies of water, it's covered with trees. There are no prairies or plains or open stretches of land. Everything is covered by the cloak of the forest. Due to the highly concentrated woodlands and rural nature of the area, the only major industries located near Tash are logging, forestry operations, and mining. An inactive railroad runs through the area as well, but went out of operation long before Mackie Basil went missing. Considering the lack of employment and the remoteness of the Kuzche Reserve and the surrounding communities, it's very possible the environment itself is to blame for Mackie's disappearance. A popular theory held by some, including investigators at the RCMP, is that Mackie vanished as a result of an animal attack. Just a few species that call rural British Columbia their natural habitats are grey wolves, coyotes, cougars, and both black and grizzly bears. All of these are distinct predators that, if hungry or provoked, are known to attack and kill humans under the proper circumstances. Thus, there is a reasonable point to be made that if Mackie was walking alone through the trees and under a night sky, she could have been unaware of a predator lurking behind her, or worse, a pack of wolves or coyotes. Maybe Mackie had run into a bear cub, and the protective mother was within striking distance to protect her young. Remember, Mackie was a music enthusiast, and it is a known fact she had her iPod shuffle and headphones with her the night she went missing. If she needed to walk a lengthy distance, she was most likely listening to music to keep her company or comfort her during periods of loneliness and isolation. It would also help combat that creepy feeling of walking through a forest in the dark as well. If she did have her music turned up to a point of outside noise cancellation, 
she would never hear an animal making its approach. Take into consideration the stealthy and quiet nature most predators have to begin with, and it's a recipe for a horribly tragic incident. The problem with an animal attack attributed to the case is the complete lack of evidence such an incident would produce. Had Mackie been attacked by a cougar or a bear, there would have been objects left behind, most likely traces of skin, blood, or bone strewn through the forest. While the woodlands around Tash are vast and seemingly endless, there were countless rescue missions that scoured every square inch of a 20-kilometer radius around the area Mackie was last seen. Animals kill on instinct. It is their nature to hunt and take their prey off to a secluded place to eat, either by themselves or with a pack. They are not wired to clean up after themselves, nor do they fully consume a corpse. There would be bone fragments left behind, not to mention the clothes Mackie was wearing. Every shred of fabric and personal belongings found in those British Columbia backwoods was forensically tested for DNA matches to Mackie, and nothing ever returned a positive match. While it's not ruled out completely, there simply aren't enough signs to suggest animal encounter or misadventure. Another potential theory put forth is the possibility that Mackie disappeared of her own accord, whether it be escaping to form a new life or potentially ending one via suicide. There isn't much circumstantial evidence to support this theory, other than that there are few other explanations as to how someone could leave without a trace. Some would point to Mackie's behavior in the months and days leading up to June 13th. She left a long-term relationship with the father of her son out of the blue, never explaining how or why to her closest family and friends. She also asked her brother and sister to take care of her son on random occasions, and specifically told Peter, goodbye, I love you, twice on the night she left. To some, it sounded like a subtle way to make peace with her loved ones before leaving permanently. Others will argue that Mackie couldn't have ended her own life or left without notice because of her unconditional love for her son and other children she helped foster, including her nephew. The sad truth of the matter is that for certain people who seek out suicide or self-harm, it doesn't always matter who or what is in their life to provide love or happiness. Who's to say Mackie wasn't dealing with inner turmoil regarding her circumstances? What if she had to run away for her safety? What if someone threatened her or her son if she didn't leave? These are far-fetched scenarios that rarely happen, especially to public knowledge, but they should be addressed. And while there are at times signs of suicidal ideation in folks contemplating taking their life, there isn't any set rules or guidelines to picking those folks out of a crowd. There are people who appear perfectly content and at peace with their life, who are actually fighting internal battles and wind up ending things anyway. Mackie could have been one of those people. She endured years worth of abuse, assault, and neglect. She was abandoned by her father, and sometimes when anxieties of abandonment surround people as children, those same insecurities fuel them in adulthood. Those who suffer from fears of abandonment will often abandon others later on in life, not because they are cruel people who want their loved ones to suffer, but because if they abandon someone first, it removes the possibility of that same person abandoning them later on. In the end, it's impossible to tell, and if it doesn't come directly from Mackie herself, the suicide or consensual escape theories are nothing more than guesswork. The third theory that makes the most sense in our eyes and the eyes of those involved with the case was that Mackie met with foul play in the early morning hours of June 14th, 2013. Of course, this theory begs a vital follow-up question. 
If another human being or beings is responsible, then who is at fault for Mackie Basil's disappearance? The most obvious possibilities are Victor and Keith, if not for any reason other than they were the last two people who allegedly saw Mackie alive. Their testimony places Mackie at the 16-kilometer checkpoint on Leo Creek Forest Service Road in the twilight hours on June 14th, walking away from the pickup truck they crashed while on the way to a hunter's cabin for supplies. It is not public knowledge as to why she left the two men, but then again, she may not have told them why either. The men reported that after the crash, Mackie departed on foot, saying she was going to try and hitchhike her way back home and would find a ride elsewhere. It is unclear what time any of this takes place in the men's version of the story. The issue with Victor and Keith's testimony, accepted by law enforcement and passed by the untrustworthy polygraph test, is that only they can stand by such claims. There were no witnesses to the car crash situation, outside of the forestry worker who was unable to identify the woman he saw as Immaculate Basil, or properly define exactly what was wrong with the truck on the side of the road. The police actually followed up with this anonymous worker and found his claims baseless. Making matters even cloudier is the fact that Victor didn't exactly have the most promising history. Not only was he much older than his counterpart Keith and Mackie Basil herself, but Victor also wasn't a Tash resident and had a somewhat lengthy list of prior criminal activity. The provincial courts in British Columbia officially have five separate violent crime convictions reported on Victor, as well as at least one charge of sexual assault. While the exact descriptions of these charges aren't known, it certainly paints Victor in a different light. It's possible he took advantage of Mackie, killed her, and threatened Keith with violence, as his past might indicate. Keith was younger than Mackie at the time, and may have struggled to protect her under the prowess of a much older, larger man. Again, this is all assumption. Victor has repeatedly denied any and all claims in the matter, and has technically been ruled out by the RCMP. The circumstantial facts don't make anyone necessarily feel good about that, but legally it's what we have and what we must go by. Both he and Keith are still alive to this day, and the potential for additional information to come out still remains. While there is little public knowledge as to any known serial criminals or kidnappers in Tash, many people believe the potential kidnapper or killer is from the area. It would make sense too, given that Mackie was on rural, unmarked roads for most of the night, and in a general area in which only locals would have known how to navigate without being seen. Who else it could be outside of Keith or Victor is impossible to discern with the information we have right now. Mackie also wasn't the first person to go missing from the general area in her own family. On September 8th, 2007, her cousin, Bonnie Joseph, went missing while attempting to hitchhike to Vanderhoof from Prince George on Highway 16. While Bonnie was most likely the victim of a random hitchhiker, it does speak to how often these types of crimes happen to First Nations women all across Canada, specifically along Highway 16, dubbed the Highway of Tears. We've covered a few videos detailing Highway 16, and if you haven't heard of it before, we recommend educating yourself on the horrifying and tragic topic as soon as you can. As a quick recap, the Highway of Tears is a 725-kilometer stretch of highway, specifically Highway 16, connecting Prince George to Prince Rupert in British Columbia. Since 1970, it has seen an inordinate amount of indigenous women and children go missing and be murdered, at much higher rates than both other demographics and other regions across Canada. 
It should be noted that Tash is located over an hour's drive north of Highway 16, and because of the remote access of the Che Reserve and the surrounding communities, there aren't many out-of-towners or passerbys that make it all the way up to Tash. Most of the forestry and logging work sees a large share of their workers coming in as regulars from the area, so it's simply less likely that an opportunist on Highway 16 would wind all the way up in a secluded area of woodlands instead of just finding someone closer to the highway. That's not to say Mackie couldn't have first hitchhiked down to Fort St. James and then been captured by a second hitchhiker in the shadier places of the city. Mackie did have a history of using hitchhiking as her mode of transportation, and her own sister, Crystal, was the near victim of a hitchhiking-related crime around the same time. She had been attempting to find a way to get from Fort St. James back to Tash when she decided to hitchhike from two men in a pickup truck, much like Mackie. While the men took various back roads instead of taking the main roads to Tash, Crystal overheard them saying, take her over there. Luckily, she was able to call them out, but imagine if she had never heard them utter that phrase. It should be noted that the men in the story are not considered suspects and have never been identified, but it gives context to what most women face to this day along the Highway of Tears and how many suspicious figures lurk in the surrounding streets. Much like the theories regarding running away and self-harm, there isn't much to use as evidence Mackie wanted to hitchhike that night. It wasn't uncommon for Mackie to spend the night in other places, but if she was going to be out overnight, she would take her travel kit bag with her. The travel kit bag, including all of what little money Mackie had, was found in her room at Peter Basil's house. It wouldn't make any sense to leave those items behind, especially if she was truly planning to be back the next day. It is important to remind ourselves that even if Mackie did run into trouble whilst hitchhiking, and even if she knew that hitchhiking in that area was dangerous, it doesn't make those who hitchhike unintelligent or bad people. For many First Nations men and women, hitchhiking is the only choice they have to get to a grocery store for foods to survive or starve. Indigenous peoples on reserves are not provided the resources to acquire driver's licenses, much less afford a car. Buses are underutilized on reserves, and sometimes there aren't even real grocery stores in an entire village, making traveling across highways to neighboring towns a requirement of survival. We must never blame someone's trauma or fate on their decision to hitchhike. Instead, place that energy towards a solution to the transportation problem First Nation peoples experience every single day. It could lead to a lessening of cases along the Highway of Tears, and more people like Mackie could make it home safe and sound without needing to hitch a ride from a total stranger. Writing a conclusion to the case of Immaculate Basil is basically a fool's errand. There is so much information we simply do not have, and even an educated guess feels useless. With only a couple of testimonies to scrutinize and a generalized timeline without images or clues left behind, it leaves the pool of persons of interest too vast to navigate, and that's if you agree with the foul play theories in the first place. As we attempt to narrow down the list of potential suspects, we are confident alongside the Basil family that if someone is indeed responsible for Mackie's disappearance, they come from the village of Tash or its surrounding communities. In fact, we'd go a step further to say the ones at fault most likely attended the same party that Mackie did. Police have said they've interviewed everyone at the party, but what if they missed someone? What if the attendees missed someone as well, 
who only showed up for a few minutes before making up their minds they would follow Mackie that night until she was alone. Whoever did it had to know the area well enough to evade capture, but also feel confident they wouldn't leave traces of her behind. They would also have to have the knowledge or resources to take her far enough away from the Tash area that search parties would not recover her body or belongings. While it's not impossible that an opportunist staying in Tash decided to kidnap her and continue along on their way across Highway 16, they would have had to have been incredibly lucky to not leave behind a trail of evidence in a woodland rarely accessed by outsiders. It is our hope that as more people are made aware of Mackie Basil's story, additional eyewitnesses will come forward with information about the party she attended on the evening of June 13th, 2013. Someone knows something and it's never too late to step into the spotlight and bring closure to family and friends who desperately seek it. Mackie Basil did not disappear into thin air on a whim. There is a reason behind it, and it's up to us and those still around to find out what it is. It is also our duty to share the story of Immaculate Basil in the proper context of who she was as an individual. She was a spirited and diligent person to those who knew her best, yet quiet and calm in the face of the public. She found a way to love everyone who crossed her path, introducing optimism to even the darkest of situations. She had the courage to stand up after being knocked down time and time again, and did not let the tragedies surrounding her define her individuality. She was a proud artist and a proud mother. The opportunity to search deeper within her culture and heritage was sadly ripped away from her but the legacy she leaves behind will not be about that. It will be about a young woman who survived, strengthened, and sought to bring peace and joy to those who were around her, and those who choose to carry on that positive way of life moving forward. This is Cold Case Detective.